0: Hello there, and welcome to this week's episode of Down to Sleep, the podcast of softly spoken stories to help you get a good night's rest, to give you something to listen to, to relax you, to lay your head down, and to drift off to sleep too. This week, Moby Dick, by Herman Melville. This is episode 36, and there are 36 more episodes currently available to Patreon supporters because there is a bonus episode every single week. So if you have found this podcast useful, you would like to support it and see it keep going, then come and join us at patreon.com slash downtosleep, where for a few dollars you get access to every single episode that there has ever been, so far, and into the future. Otherwise, thanks for listening. Whatever you're listening on, wherever you are listening from, I appreciate you. Hope you've had a beautiful start to this month. Let's jump in to Moby Dick. Chapter 1, Loomings. Call me a Shmell. Some years ago, never mind how long precisely, having little or no money in my purse, and nothing in particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail about a little and see the watery part of the world. It is a way that I have of driving off the spleen and regulating the circulation. Whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth, whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul, whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses, bringing up the rear of every funeral I meet, and especially whenever my hypos gets such an upper hand of me that it requires a strong moral principle to prevent me from deliberately stepping into the street and methodically knocking people's hats off. Then... I account it high time to get to sea as soon as I can. This is my substitute for pistol and ball. With a philosophical flourish, Cato throws himself upon his sword. I quietly take to the ship. There is nothing surprising in this. If they but knew it, almost all men in their degree, some time or other, cherish very nearly the same feeling towards the ocean with me. There now is your insular city of the Manhattos, belted round by wharves as Indian Isles by coral reefs. Commerce surrounds it with her surf. Right and left, the streets take you waterward. Its extreme downtown is the battery where the noble mole is washed by waves, cooled by breezes, which a few hours previous were out of sight of land. Look at the crowds of water-gazers there. Circumambulate the city of a dreamy Sabbath afternoon. Go from Collier's Hook to Cointy Slip, and from thence by Whitehall northward. What do you see? Posted like silent sentinels all around the town. Stand thousands upon thousands of mortal men, fixed in ocean reveries. Some leaning against the spiles, some seated upon pierheads, some looking over the bulwarks of ships from China, some high aloft in the rigging as if striving to get a still better seaward peep. But these are all landsmen, of weekdays pent up in lathe and plaster, tied to counters, nailed to benches, clinched to desks. How then is this? Are the greenfields gone? What do they hear? look, here come more crowds, pacing straight for the water and seemingly bound for a dive. Strange. Nothing will content them but the extremest limit of the land. Loitering under the shady lee of yonder warehouses will not suffice, no. They must get just as nigh the water as they possibly can without falling in. And there they stand, miles of them, leagues. Inland as all. They come from lanes and alleys, streets and avenues, north, east, south, west. Yet here they all unite. Tell me, does the magnetic virtue of the needles of the compasses of all those ships attract them thither? Once more, say you are in the country in some highland of lakes, take almost any path you please, and ten to one it carries you down in a dale, leaves you there by a pool. In the stream, there is magic in it, let the most absent-minded of men be plunged in his deepest reveries, stand that man on his legs, set his feet a-going and he will infallibly lead you to water, if water there be in all that region, should you ever be athirst in the great American desert, try this experiment, If your caravan happened to be supplied with a metaphysical professor, yes, as everyone knows, meditation and water are wedded forever. But here is an artist. He desires to paint you the dreamiest, shadiest, quietest, most enchanting bit of romantic landscape in all the Valley of Sacco. What is the chief element he employs? There stand his trees, each with a hollow trunk, as if a hermit and a crucifix were within... Here sleeps his meadows, there sleeps his cattle, and up from yonder cottage goes a sleepy smoke. Deep into distant woodlands winds a mazy way, reaching to overlapping spurs of mountains bathed in hillside blue. But though the picture lies thus tranced, and though this pine tree shakes down its sighs like leaves upon the shepherd's head, yet all were vain unless the shepherd's eye were fixed upon the magic stream before him. Go visit the prairies in June, when for scores on scores of miles you wade knee-deep among tiger lilies. What is the one charm wanting? Water. There is not a drop of water there. Would Niagara but a cataract of sand, would you travel your thousand miles to see it? Why did the poor poet of Tennessee, upon suddenly receiving two handfuls of silver, deliberate whether to buy him a coat, which he sadly needed, or invest his money in a pedestrian trip to Rockaway Beach? Why is almost every robust, healthy boy with a robust, healthy soul in him at some time or other crazy to go to sea? Why, upon your first voyage as a passenger, did you yourself feel such a mystical vibration when first told that you and your ship were out of sight of land. Why did the old Persians hold the sea holy? Why did the Greeks give it a separate deity, an own brother of Jove? Surely all this is not without meaning. still deeper, the meaning of that story of Narcissus, who, because he could not grasp the tormenting mild image he saw in the fountain, plunged into it and was drowned. But with that same image, we ourselves see in all rivers and oceans. It is the image of the ungraspable phantom of life. And this is the key to it all. Now, when I say that I am in the habit of going to sea, whenever I begin to grow hazy about the eyes, and begin to be overconscious of my lungs, I do not mean to have it inferred that I ever go to sea as a passenger, for to go as a passenger, you must needs have a purse. And a purse is but a rag unless you have something in it. Besides, passengers get seasick, grow quarrelsome, don't sleep of nights, do not enjoy themselves much, as a general thing. No, I never go as a passenger. Nor, though, am I something of a salt. Do I ever go to sea as a commodore or a captain or a cook? I abandon the glory and distinction of such offices to those who like them. For my part, I abominate all honourable, respectable toils, trials and tribulations of every kind whatsoever. It is quite as much as I can do to take care of myself without taking care of ships and brigs and schooners and whatnot. As for going as a cook, though, I confess there is considerable glory in that. A cook being a sort of officer on shipboard, yet somehow I never fancied broiling fowls. Though once broiled, judiciously buttered, and judgmentally salted and peppered, there is no one who will speak more respectfully, not to say reverentially, of a broiled fowl than I will. It is out of the idolatrous dotings of the old Egyptians upon broiled ibis and roasted river horse that you see the mummies of those creatures in their huge bakehouses the pyramids. No, when I go to sea, I go as a simple sailor. Right before the mast, plumb down into the forecastle, aloft there to the royal masthead. True, they rather order me about some, make me jump from spar to spar like a grasshopper in a May meadow. And at first, this sort of thing is unpleasant enough, it touches one's sense of honour particularly if you come of an old established family in the land, the Van Renneselars or Randolphs. More than all, if just previous to putting your hand into the tar pot, you've been lauding it as a country schoolmaster, making the tallest boys stand in awe of you. The transition is a keen one. I assure you, from schoolmaster to a sailor, and requires a strong decotion of Seneca and the Stoics, "'to enable you to grin and bear it. "'But even this wears off in time. "'What of it, if some old hunks of a sea-captain "'order me to get a broom and sweep down the deck? "'What does that indignity amount to, "'weighted I mean in the scales of the New Testament? "'Do you think the Archangel Gabriel "'thinks anything less of me, "'because I promptly and respectfully obey that old hunk "'in that particular instance?' Who ain't a slave? Tell me that. Well then, however the old sea captains may order me about, however they may thump and punch me about, I have the satisfaction of knowing that it is alright, that everybody else is one way or other served in much the same way, either in a physical or metaphysical point of view. So the universal thump is passed around. And all hands should rub each other's shoulder blades and be content. Again, I always go to sea as a sailor, because they make a point of paying me for my trouble, whereas they never pay passengers a single penny that I ever heard of. On the contrary, passengers themselves must pay. And there is all the difference in the world between paying and being paid. The act of paying is perhaps the most uncomfortable infliction that the two orchard thieves entailed upon us. But being paid? What will compare with it? The urbane activity with which a man receives money is really marvellous. Considering that we so earnestly believe money to be the root of all earthly ills, that on no account can a moneyed man enter heaven. How cheerfully we consign ourselves to perdition, Finally, I always go to sea as a sailor, because of the wholesome exercise and pure air of the forecastle deck. For as in this world headwinds are far more prevalent than winds from astern. so for the most part, the commodore on the quarter deck gets his atmosphere at second hand from the sailors on the forecastle. He thinks he breathes it first, but not so. In much the same way do the commonalty lead their leaders in many other things at the same time that the leaders little suspected. But wherefore it was that after having repeatedly smelt the sea as a merchant sailor, I should now take it into my head to go on a whaling voyage. This the invisible police officer of the fates, who has the constant surveillance of me and secretly dogs me and influences me in some unaccountable way. He can better answer than anyone else. And doubtless, my going on this whaling voyage formed part of the grand program of Providence that was drawn up a long time ago. It came in as a sort of brief interlude, a solo between more extensive performances. I take it that this part of the bill must have run something like this. Grand contested election for presidency of United States. Wailing Voyage by One Ishmael. Bloody battle in Afghanistan. Though I cannot tell why it was exactly that those stage managers, the fates, put me down for this shabby part of a whaling voyage, when others were set down for magnificent parts in high tragedies and short and easy parts in genteel comedies, jolly parts in farces, though I cannot tell why this was exactly yet. Now that I recall all the circumstances, I think I can see a little into the springs and motives which, being cunningly presented to me under various disguises, induced me to set about performing the part that I did, besides cajoling me into the delusion that it was a choice resulting from my own unbiased free will and discriminating judgment. Chief among these motives was the overwhelming idea of the great whale himself. Such a portentous and mysterious monster roused my curiosity. In the wild and distant seas where he rolled his island bulk, the undeliverable, nameless perils of the whale, these with all the attending marvels of a thousand Patagonian sights and sounds helped to sway me to my wish. With other men, perhaps such things would not have been inducements. But as for me, I am tormented with an everlasting itch for things remote. I love to sail forbidden seas, land on barbarous coasts. Not ignoring what is good, I am quick to perceive a horror. Could still be social with it, would they let me? since it is but well to be on friendly terms with all the inmates of the place one lodges in. By reason of these things, then, the whaling voyage was welcome. The great floodgates of the wonderworld swung open, and in the wild conceits that swayed me to my purpose, two and two there floated into my inmost soul. Endless processions of the whale. Amid most of them all, one grand hooded phantom, like a snow hill in the air. Chapter 2. The Carpet Bag I stuffed a shirt or two into my old carpet bag, tucked it under my arm and started for Cape Horn in the Pacific quitting the good city of old Manhattan. I duly arrived in New Bedford. It was a Saturday night in December. Much was I disappointed upon learning that the little packet for Nantucket had already sailed, and that no way of reaching that place would offer till following Monday. As most young candidates for the pains and penalties of whaling stop at this same New Bedford, thence to embark on their voyage it may as well be related that I for one had no idea of so doing for my mind was made up to sail in no other than a Nantucket craft there was a fine boisterous something about everything connected with that famous old island which amazingly pleased me besides though, New Bedford has of late been gradually monopolizing the business of whaling and though in this matter poor old Nantucket is now much behind her Yet Nantucket was her great original, the tire of this Carthage, this place where the first dead American whale was stranded. Where else but from Nantucket did those aboriginal whalesmen, the red men, first sally out in canoes to give chase to the Leviathan? And where but from Nantucket, too, did that first adventurous little sloop put forth Partly laden with imported cobblestones. So goes the story. To throw at the whales. In order to discover when they were nigh enough to risk a harpoon from the bow spirit. Now having a night, a day, and still another night following before me in New Bedford. ere I could embark for my destined port. It became a matter of concernment where I was to eat and sleep meanwhile. It was a very dubious-looking, nay, very dark and dismal night. Bitingly cold and cheerless, I knew no one in this place. With anxious scrapnels I had sounded my pocket and only brought up a few pieces of silver. So wherever you go, Ishmael, said I to myself as I stood in the middle of a dreary street shouldering my bag, comparing the gloom towards the north with the darkness towards the south. Wherever in your wisdom you may conclude to lodge for the night, my dear Ishmael, be sure to inquire the price, and don't be too particular. With halting steps I paced the streets and passed the sign of the crossed harpoons, but it looked too expensive and jolly there further on from the bright red windows of the swordfish inn there came such fervent rays that it seemed to have melted the packed snow and ice from before the house for everywhere else the congealed frost lay ten inches thick in a hard asphaltic pavement rather weary for me when i struck my foot against the flinty projections "'because from hard, remorseless service "'the soles of my boots were in a most miserable plight. "'Too expensive and jolly again thought I, "'pausing one moment to watch the broad glare in the street, "'to hear the sounds of tinkling glasses within. "'But go on, Ishmael,' said I at last, "'don't you hear? "'Get away from the door. "'Your patched boots are stopping the way.' "'So on I went. I now by instinct followed the streets that took me waterward, for there doubtless were the cheapest, if not cheeriest, inns. Such dreary streets, blocks of blackness, not houses, on either hand and here and there a candle, like a candle moving about in a tomb. At this hour of the night of the last day of the week, that quarter of the town proved all but deserted. Presently I came to a smoky light proceeding from a low, wide building the door of which stood invitingly open. It had a careless look as if it were meant for the uses of the public, so entering the first thing I did was to stumble over an ash box in the porch. Ha! I thought as the flying particles almost choked me at these ashes from that destroyed city, Gomorrah. But the crossed harpoons and the swordfish, this then must be needs to be the sign of the trap. However, I picked myself up, and hearing a loud voice within, pushed on, and opened a second interior door. And that is where we close the book on this week's episode of Down to Sleep. If you need longer, you'd like to hear longer episodes. The Patreon has episodes that are usually 30 minutes plus, as well as all of those bonus episodes and compiled episodes. So check those out as well. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. I wish you the sweetest dreams and the best rest that you deserve. Until next week, thank you for joining me and good night.